Welcome to season two of the Lead with Indeed podcast, where we chat with experts about the world of work. Here, authors, researchers, and industry leaders share their expertise on the science of talent acquisition, management, the future of work, and much, much more. I'm Liz Lewis, anthropologist, writer, and researcher at Indeed. On today's show, I'm speaking with Caitlin Collins, assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Collins is a sociologist and an expert on work and caregiving. Her book, Making Motherhood Work, looks at how women juggle their professional and family responsibilities and why this is often so hard. But caregiving isn't just about parents. We will all, at some point, provide care for loved ones or for ourselves. I spoke with Dr. Collins to learn how companies can help employees balance care and work. In our chat, she offers research-based insights on why supporting all workers is a win-win for everyone. Let's get started. I'm speaking today with Caitlin Collins, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Washington University and the author of Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. Caitlin, I'm so excited to have you on our podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on today. Um, So let's start with some basics. Um, You are a sociologist and your work focuses on gender, work, and family life. What drew you to this topic? What drew me to this topic? Uh, I grew up with a, a two parents who loved their jobs a lot. And then my folks got divorced and my mom, um, did this as a single mom, her balancing a career that she loved a lot while trying to take care of my sister and me around the clock and watching her struggle as I grew up, I think, to be honest with you, is part of my motivation in studying this topic. I remember, you know, watching a mom like mine who was very smart, very dedicated, um, committed to being both a good mom and pursuing a successful career and watching her struggle to make both of those things work, even as quite a privileged person, you know, white, highly educated, middle-class, even she had a hard time doing both of these things. And, and my own mom ended up quitting her very successful career in corporate sales and marketing to stay home with my sister and me. Um, she accepted a job that was part-time without benefits that paid way less, um, once she became a single mom after a few years of trying to do both because she felt she couldn't be the kind of mom she wanted to be. And she felt like she was constantly failing on the job. Um, And so I became interested in these gender work and family dynamics as a result of watching my own mom struggle and and thinking to myself as I grew up and of course became, you know, a teenager, a young woman and an adult that it shouldn't have to be this hard. (laughs) Uh, We live in a country in general that really individualizes people's social problems. And I think mom's stress and guilt and overwhelm are often talked about in very individual ways when I actually think that they are, they're social and structural problems. Excellent. Um, And what insights can you provide, you know, with your training as a sociologist um, that perhaps someone who's an expert in policy or a company CEO might not be able to, and I'm thinking here specifically insights into the world of work and how people navigate that world. Yeah, sociology is the study of, of how people interact with one another, right? And uh, and also the, the understanding of how people interact with and are shaped and shape at the same time the, the social structures and institutions of their daily lives. And of course, work is one of the primary institutions that we all engage with day to day. And so sociologists bring uh, insight into understanding the, that interplay between what we talk about as structure and agency. What is it? How do places like work and individuals like workers interact with one another in ways that are patterned, that are predictable, and that we can study uh, to not only make, of course, businesses more profitable and productive, but also workers happier and healthier. So sociology brings a lens through which to understand that relationship that uh, I think at least is really interesting. 
Excellent. Um, and what would you just say to somebody who is not a woman or not a working mom, um, maybe somebody who thinks that they don't need to pay attention to these kinds of issues? Why is it still relevant? Sure. Yeah. So I can talk about this from a couple different perspectives. One Excellent. might be the fact that uh, at least for, you know, men who are in romantic partnerships with women, uh, this this affects you. This will affect you if it doesn't already. Right. Um, and and I, and I study gender inequality and a lot of people think that means I speak. I only study women. Um, but of course, gender inequality hurts men too, not just women, right? And, and we live in a society where women bear the disproportionate responsibility for, for the home, uh, for both childcare and housework. And part of the, the takeaway from my book that I hope men understand is that is that they have a, a not only, of course, a responsibility to participate equally at home, but they have a right to be involved in their families' lives. And, um, and for folks who maybe you know, aren't in romantic relationships with women or don't ever plan to have children. Of course, in general, these sorts of issues impact everyone. Uh, when the vast majority of workers in the U.S., 86% of adults in their working age lives become parents, this means that the vast majority of workers are going to have kids. And if you don't have kids yourself, or if you're a, you know, a manager or an employer, you will have employees who are, are juggling these responsibilities. And the research shows time and time again, that providing more robust work family policy supports and, you know, enabling a cultural atmosphere in the workplace that helps folks reconcile work and family benefits the bottom line. It benefits employers. Um, and, you know, again, study after study shows that, that, that these policies are good for employers as well as employees. And so it's kind of uh, a win-win in that way. And we often don't talk about it that way in the States. I think it's really important that we shift our thinking in that direction. In reading through your book, I was thinking of it almost in terms of ideas of universal design, right? This idea sure. of creating more accessible um, public spaces, workspaces, et cetera, essentially benefits everybody. Exactly. Um, because even if, you know, you're not a parent, um, you might have to care for yourself or care for a partner at some point or certainly or care parent. for aging mm -hmm. parents. Exactly. Yeah. So it does seem like this, this sort of thread of care and work really is universal, no matter, you know, how one individual is positioned. Exactly. Um, we don't talk about it that way in the U.S. We we are facing what, what sociologists, including myself, talk about as a crisis of care. But if you think about care, what it means, right, the, the kind of everyday work that goes into reproducing a person to be able to, you know, eat, sleep, function, work, you know, live, uh, engage in daily life. We all need it. <laughs> and we all know people who need it from us. Right. Every person in our society needs care. Right. We all have. We all do. We all will. And so if it is a universal need, why don't we think about designing policies that address that universal need. What are some ways that employers can support workers who do have outside caregiving responsibilities? Sure. So, you know, I think in the U.S., a lot of the most progressive, exciting, creative solutions we're seeing to, to a diverse set of work family conflicts are happening at the firm level, at the organization level. And it's because employers realize the value in offering these policies. And in all honesty, especially amongst, you know, firms like Indeed and, and, and other similar employers, these are recruitment and retention tactics, right? It's increasingly yeah. likely that employers are offering policies like some sort of flexible parental leave or caregiving leave, bereavement leave. Um, it is much 
cheaper for an employer to retain that worker <laughs> rather than, yeah. uh, you know, try to perhaps minimally support them during a leave, have it be so stressful that that person ends up deciding the best path forward for themselves is to quit. And so that leaves uh, an employer in, in a lurch, right? They have to recruit and then train someone mm -hmm. to get them back up to the same level of productivity as that person who stepped out for a bit. That's a lot more money. So, you know, formal policies like a bit of time away um, or, for example, instituting a, a minimum for vacation and sick days that workers can either earn or get as a right by mm -hmm. virtue of their employment is really valuable. Of course, some employers also, you know, uh, assist with things like emergency child care or have on, you know, on-site child care solutions, with it, which I think is really wonderful. Um, and, and I think these policy supports are really important. The, the other side of that coin that I want to mention is, of course, cult the cultural atmosphere of the workplace, right? And when workers are afraid to talk about anything but work on the job, this ends up over time impinging on their ability to perform their job fully, right? Um, all of us have interests outside of work. <laughs> Not all of us feel comfortable talking about them in the workplace, especially women and especially folks who have caregiving responsibilities at home, right? I can't tell you how many women tell me that they try to avoid the topic of their families or their kids in particular at work. Uh, sure. I can't tell you how many women tell me they fib about where they're going at the end of the day because they, uh, it's more likely that an employer is okay with them leaving for their own dentist appointment than it is to go pick up their kid and take their kid to a dentist appointment. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. to me, that lack of transparency about how you're spending your time is part of the problem because it suggests that your employer yeah. is not there to look out for you as a whole person. <laughs> uh, and we, yeah. I think all workers deserve to be seen as whole people in the workplace and it benefits employers when, when they do so. There's a lot of talk um, in the HR space about mm -hmm. unconscious or implicit bias um, in general, you know, typically around gender, race. But I, I do think it's a really important topic to address when it comes to caregiving um, and specifically parents. Yeah. What are some things that, um, that employers can do to raise awareness about unconscious bias in this, um, in this arena? Yeah, I think unconscious bias in this regard is huge. We, t we call yeah. it caregiver bias. If we're thinking about how we can address the issue of unconscious caregiver bias in workplaces today, in my mind, the first starts with you know, managers and employers knowing what policies are on the books to support parents at their given workplace. Um, the fact that we assume that women are categorically more responsible for the domestic sphere means they are categorically less responsible on the job is really problematic. Um, and I think if we bring those assumptions into the workplace, it translates into lots of preconceived notions about who a good worker is, who does and does not deserve promotions and raises, who does and does not deserve mentoring support and opportunities. And so knowing the sorts of policies on the books so that a, a, a person or a parent who comes to you to talk about them, instead of, you know, kind of looking at them puzzled, like, well, I have no idea what our firm does to support folks who have caregiving needs, mm -hmm. educating oneself about what those are so that if a worker comes to you, you can say, I know plenty about what we have on hand here. Let me tell you about what we have on offer. Um, and then also role modeling that it is okay and acceptable to talk about your family at work is something that managers who are in a position of power can do to make the workplace more family friendly and more comfortable because it's one thing to have policies on the books and it's something very different for workers to feel comfortable taking them or using them. So those are at least a few ideas I have for, for kind of shifting yeah. the cultural environment um, and also kind of the political environment. If you know what the policies are and you can help your workers use them, um, it signals again that, that it's perfectly okay. Excellent. What are some things that recruiters and hiring managers can do to 
become more educated about their own biases in this regard and also create a more inclusive setting for job seekers. So if recruiters, they can say, you know, at any stage of an interview, I have no idea if this applies to you now or might in the future, but I want to talk to you a bit about the sorts of work family policies that X company offers, right? And I can tell you from my my own partner's perspective, um, he works for a tech company. And when he learned that his tech company, we don't have kids yet, but we'd like to one day, they offer four months of paid parental leave to men and women both. And for him, that sealed the deal. He was like, I want to work in a workplace that values that time spent for for a parent with their with their newborn and or adopted child, right? To him, that got him really excited about what the company mm-hmm. stood for. Um, and I think that's one example of, you know, I don't know that most people would look at my husband and think like he is probably a dude who would really value parental leave, right? But like <laughs> he does. And yeah. uh, a recruiter mentioning that to him, you know, as he was talking to plenty of tech companies about what what job he wanted to take, that helped that company stand out to him. The, these policies are symbols of what companies value. Um How can employers make the hiring process, including interviews, more accessible and perhaps less challenging for parents right now? And I think of, you know, that infamous BBC interview with the political (laughs) science professor. (laughs) I've watched it so many times during COVID and his baby flies into the room and then this preschooler sort of dances in. And that seemed in 2017 like it was not as widely applicable to the rest of us. But I think most parents I know who are currently at home strongly relate to that video now. And I'm wondering how employers can maybe send a signal to job seekers right now that, you know, just because you're maybe at home or your kids are at home or you're dealing with all of these really unusual circumstances, that doesn't mean you can't apply for a job. That doesn't mean you can't interview for a job. How can they make the process more accessible um, and open? Yeah. Oh, this is such a good and valuable question, Liz. I appreciate you asking it. And of course, to be honest with you, the first thing that pops into my mind and and thinking about that famous BBC video is that put yourself in the shoes of a, of a single parent who wants to apply for a job with your company. And they need to to, to do that interview over, over zoom, for example, and there is no other parent at home to help them. Mm -hmm. And perhaps they don't have anyone else in their pod to care for that child while they sit for an interview. One way a, a recruiter could potentially, you know, make them feel a little bit more comfortable and willing to apply for the job is to say, um, you know, this is an unprecedented time. And we realize that, you know, other sources of, of care for, for kids, aren't available right now, just know that if you need to have a child in the room with you for a conversation, we're, that we more than welcome that. Again, providing a bit of understanding around that, saying perhaps in an email, like, feel free to use a Zoom background, you know, a, a templated background if you want to. Just thinking about how you can signal that we understand this is an odd, unprecedented, and hopefully short-lived time means yeah. that it, it signals that you care, again, about all of these external uh, extenuating circumstances that really impact their day-to-day life. What would you say to a skeptic who thinks that flexibility necessarily means that a worker is less productive. I guess I would ask that skeptic, is there never an instance where you need flexibility every once in a while, right? None of us are robots showing up to this job kind of in an automated (laughs) sense, right? All of us sometimes whatever. There's a million things that could be causing folks to need a bit of flexibility right now, not just not just parenting needs, right? Um I don't know. I I really operate from the perspective that 
that thinking of your workers as whole people will help you be a better, you know, recruiter, manager, employer. Um, and it will, again, benefit you in the long run for treating your workers like whole people and not just HR files. Thinking again about how to create a bit more space and grace and flexibility for your employees, I think will net major returns in the long run, even if it does mean it feels like perhaps, you know, I know some workers who have dropped their hours, you know, an hour or two a day right now. Again, letting a worker do that and then, you know, transition back to full-time is much easier for an employer than firing that person for needing a bit of flexibility and saying, yeah. we just can't give it to you. And then having to find someone brand new to retrain and, and again, get their productivity back up to where that person was. That's a lot more work. And so again, flexibility right now seems to be the key for helping reduce burnout for workers right now. What about, I'm curious, um, in this sort of loose model of flexibility, what it means for boundaries between yeah. work and life. Um, because we've already blurred those boundaries with so many people working in the home, right? Our work has literally come into our physical homes. But what does it do sort of psychologically? Um, how do we how do we still maintain boundaries um, in some sense working under these conditions? Oh, I mean, this is a question I ask myself every day because I struggle with these boundaries, right? Um, the yeah. fact that I never leave my house right. and I spend all day working and then I log off and it's like, well, I don't really, I don't have kids, yeah. right? So it's my partner and me at home all day, every day. It is very easy for me, you know, in the evenings to just pull out my phone, check my email mm -hmm. to make sure I haven't missed anything. And one of my interviewees in the book I write talks about this. She calls it the swirl. She says she and her yes. friends call this the swirl. That's the idea that work and family and, you know, home life are kind of blended together and inseparable. And she said, sometimes I'm working, I pull out my phone because I realize I need to order some diapers. I open the Amazon app, I push order real quick. And it's so nice to be able to knock out that to do, you know, and just keep on with my day. The problem mm -hmm. of course, is that the swirl, I think leads to burnout <laughs> because you never feel like you're off duty. What are some steps employers can take to reduce burnout right now? And are these measures um, different for working parents and workers without kids? Or are they, are they initiatives that might benefit everybody and carry on into the future? Great question. And, and I do think this can be a, sort of a, a universal design issue, yeah, right? I do too. Um, I can think about this manifesting in all sorts of different ways. Um, I know one employer who does not schedule meetings on Fridays, meeting free Fridays. I thought mm -hmm. it's such a brilliant idea, right? Um, or, you know, we can go back to having calls that are not Zoom video calls. For example, we can pick up a phone to chat with people. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you, you know, firsthand how much less stressed I feel about a potential work yeah. call when it's a phone call rather than right. a Zoom one. It's tiring. The sort right. of self-presentation that's required of being on video all the time is very tiring for workers. Yep. If it's better for workers to sign off when their kiddos elementary school, you know, Zoom is done at 2.30 every day, and maybe they, you know, take care of that kiddo till dinner. If they have a partner step in maybe to help them out and they can log back on and, and finish their work day later in the evening after their kiddos have gone to bed. In a lot of circumstances and a lot of companies it doesn't really do much to impinge on the work that's getting done, right? It's going to be done before the next job day starts up, right? Mm -hmm. And in my mind, giving workers that flexibility is absolutely key to reducing burnout right now because it, again, assists with burnout. And we know that that is key long-term to, to employee retention. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, their creativity and productivity on the job relies on their ability to show up every day rested and energized. And we can't do that when we spend all day, every day working. I'm curious about your thoughts on remote work. There's a lot yeah. of talk right now um, 
about remote work and what it means for the future of work. Um, Is remote work the answer to work-life balance? Uh, I think it is a necessary component, but an insufficient solution to work-family balance. I think that flexibility itself is absolutely vital moving forward for all workers, those who have kids and those who don't, I think all of us need it. Um, And so I think affording flexibility and one part of flexibility can be remote work um, is important in the long term. And I think a lot of employers have realized that plenty of jobs can be done remotely that they didn't think were possible. I think that is very emancipatory for workers and really opens up creative potentials. So 2020 is often discussed as sort of an impromptu experiment in working from home. Um, Of course, this is only partially true because, as you said, we didn't choose it. We're working within (laughs) significant constraints, um, extenuating circumstances, kids at home. Maybe we don't have a standalone office. Maybe we don't have a door and need a door. Maybe in my case, there is construction across the street. You know, there are all of these different factors. Right. (laughs) And um, what would you say to employers about what we can and also cannot extrapolate? from this so-called experiment? Oh my goodness. That's a really powerful question. Um, I think one thing we can extrapolate is that workers have always needed flexibility. It has just become more visible. It has become more obvious today. Um, I think it will always be the case that workers need and deserve and value flexibility. Um, So that I don't think is going anywhere. Um, I think that the idea that your employees are available to work all the time is one coping tactic that, em- that employees have adopted because they really value their jobs right now. And especially in a recession where lots of folks are getting laid off, furloughed, laid off, right, fired in some cases, folks have really been sort of leaning into the work as a way to show that, you know, to signal to their employers, mm-hmm. I am really needed here, right? Like, you need me, please don't let me go. Um, and that kind of extra extra leaning in on the part of employees, of course, is not sustainable long-term. And I don't think it should be. I don't think Mm -hmm. we should expect workers to work around the clock and answer emails at all hours of the day and night. Um, And I think we can't extrapolate that kind of level of commitment in unprecedented, difficult times to normal everyday life. It's just not sustainable. And again, we all need a bit more boundaries. Um, I think this has been, as you said, an experiment in having very few of them. And I think what we've seen is that it can be quite problematic for workers um, in honoring those external responsibilities and addition to to employees paid work really benefits them. And and I do think that's a lesson we can extrapolate to after the pandemic as well. Excellent. And I mean, it's important to note that what we are all dealing with now will not last forever. The pandemic will not last forever. At some point, companies are um, companies that have struggled are going to come back. People are going to need workers exactly. again. Um, and this is a you know, short-term the, crisis. <laughs> we exactly. need to treat it like that, which means, you know, if workers are going to unprecedented ends to try to get their job done day to day, then employers can meet them there, right? By trying to help get them through this very difficult time. And in my way, mm-hmm. this is mutually beneficial in my, to my way of thinking, right? This kind of employer, employer employee contract that means all of us are going through a hard time. Let's all try to support each other till we're on the other side. And of course, continue mm-hmm. supporting each other then seems to me incredibly valuable right now, um, of course, both for workers and their, and their managers. I'm Liz Lewis. My thanks to our guest, Caitlin Collins, for sharing her insights on work and caregiving and how employers can support workers navigating this balancing act. Thank you for listening. In the next episode, we'll meet Katrina Collier, talent expert and author of The Robot Roof Recruiter. She'll discuss the skills recruiters need to stay relevant in an increasingly automated world and share her strategies for nurturing the human side of talent. 
I hope you'll join me. Subscribe to Lead with Indeed for additional content, episodes, and to hear from a variety of experts on work, talent, leadership, and more. Find more content, videos, and articles about the world of recruiting at indeed.com slash lead.